0: to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, our God reigns. He is in control and He will reign forevermore. He is glorious, He is great, He is worthy of our adoration, and that's why we sing, and that's why we study, and that's why we look to Him. As you're turning to Psalm 73, I want you to think back uh, to a time in your life, maybe somebody has told you, probably some opponent of the gospel. Um, maybe it's uh, somebody who just genuinely has questions about the gospel or about the Bible. But have you ever had somebody ask you or, or, or proclaim to you that they don't believe the Bible because it's full of inconsistencies or it's full of contradictions? Show of hands. How many of you have, you have heard of that before? Okay. Somebody's asked you that. What do you do when that happens? I do three things. The first thing that I do is I ask them to show me what their contradiction is. Genuinely, I want to know because I know that the Bible is reconcilable. There are seemingly contradictory places in scripture, but I know that we can reconcile them. So I give them a Bible and I say, can you show me where these inconsistencies are? Nine times out of ten, they can't. And they're just using it as a smokescreen to say, I don't want to believe in Christianity. I don't want to believe God. I don't want to follow him. So I'm going to say his word isn't true. It's filled with inconsistencies, and so you ask them, where are they? And they say, I don't know. Second, if they do know where they are, and we can talk through them, my second question is, um, a genuine question, have you read the whole Bible? Because if you only see parts of a book, then maybe it seems contradictory or it seems like it has loose ends that aren't tied together. But if you read the whole of the book, you'll see how it all fits together. So have you read the whole of the scriptures? Again, nine times out of ten, they say no, which I'm able to say, okay, that makes sense then that you see contradictory statements, you see inconsistencies because if you haven't seen the whole of the scriptures, you're going to have a hard time with how they all fit together. But if they have read through the whole scriptures, then the third thing I do is I walk them through my list test. Um, I, I ask them, um, what, give me a list of all the things that you find difficult about the Bible and number them out. And let's say, for just sake of argument, you had 33 things that you found difficult to believe or to accept about the scriptures. What you're telling me, this is what I I say, I communicate. What you're telling me then is, if I took that list of 33 things that are the stumbling block and the, the, uh, the, the barrier between you and believing the Bible, if I took those 33 things and I walked away, and I was able to answer them sufficiently, effectively from God's word, you're telling me that then you would have to become a Christian because these are the things that are standing in the way between you and believing in the gospel, correct? Um, I've done this several times and no one has said, yes, you're right. They all respond, no, I still wouldn't believe. So then you're able to say, okay, and if they actually have a physical list, which I, I... the first time I ever did this with somebody, it was somebody in McDonald's and we wrote lists on napkins. And once we had finished all of the lists, I actually went and grabbed coffee, went to the bathroom, uh, got something from my car, came back. He's still writing a list down. Uh, I think it had 18 points on it. And once he was done, I said, okay, so you're telling me if I could answer all of these things biblically and effectively and sufficiently, you're telling me you would have to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You would have to become a Christian. And this gentleman said, no. And I said, okay. And I, Picked them up, threw them away. Said, so "Then that's not the issue, right? If if that doesn't solve the problem, those aren't the issues. That's again another smokescreen. What's the issue? And the issue is bowing the knee to Jesus Christ. You don't want to give up your autonomy and your authority of your own life. Now, some of us might struggle with the Bible that way, with inconsistencies in God's word. But I would make a, a I would go out on a limb to say this statement. I don't think that the majority of us struggle with inconsistencies in Scripture. I think the majority of us struggle with inconsistencies in life. We read the Scriptures, we believe the Scriptures, and the Scriptures say life is supposed to be a certain way. And then we don't see life being that way. Inconsistencies in life, I think, are more difficult for believers, they've accepted God's word. And granted, we can totally have issues with God's word. We can struggle with things in God's word. I understand that. That's totally possible. But I think once you take God's word for what it truly is, I think the next biggest struggle to your faith is when you see inconsistencies in the way life is actually playing itself out. You read one thing, you see something else. What do you do in those moments? That's what Psalm 73 is all about. Psalm 73 is a man struggling with, okay, I know God says this is going to happen. If I live righteously before him, I'll be blessed and the wicked won't prosper. And yet on the other hand, I see in life, the wicked are prospering. The righteous are not being blessed. What's going on? What's happening? Psalm 73 is a little bit lengthy, so we're not going to read through the whole thing right up front. Um, We'll read through it as we go through. Um, But you can see, if you're there, Psalm 73, you can see, number one, it's book number three. It's the first psalm in book number three. You remember last week we looked at Psalm 90, which is the first psalm in book number four. This is the first psalm in book number three. It opens up this book, and it's written by Asaph. It says, a psalm of Asaph. Asaph in the Bible, there's at least four different Asaphs in the Bible, maybe more. So which one is this? Uh, we want to know who this is because he wrote uh, the next 10 psalms, and he also wrote Psalm 50. So Asaph wrote Psalm 50, and he wrote Psalm 73 through 83. We want to know who he is. Let me just tell you who he is. He is Haman's brother. He is Berechiah's son. You can write down 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 39, and he was appointed as a singer, specifically as a leader of the choral music. In the, temp- in the tabernacle and in the temple. 1 Chronicles 15, 16 through 19 is where I would um, send you for that. And then also 2 Chronicles 5:12. So that's Asaph. He authored 12 psalms total. And this psalm, Psalm 73, he authored is a wisdom psalm, much like Psalm 1. I believe he knew Psalm 1 well. I believe that's why he's struggling. Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not do all these wicked things, but instead his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. And because he meditates day and night on the word, he will be like a tree planted firmly by rivers of water, yields its fruit in season. Whatever he does, he prospers. The leaf doesn't wither. All of these realities about who the blessed man is, And then all these realities that the wicked are not so, they're chaff, it's driven by the wind. I believe that Asaph knew Psalm 1, believed Psalm 1, and that's why he's struggling with life. I want you to write down, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote an amazing book on this, very helpful. We won't be able to dive in to this psalm the way that it should be treated for the sake of our time this morning. But just write down, Faith on Trial. Faith on Trial, Studies in Psalm 73, written by Martin Lloyd-Jones, amazing book. He wrote a couple books that deal with the Psalms, and one of my favorite books uh, really of all time is Spiritual Depression uh, on Psalm 42 by Martin Lloyd-Jones, and this is another one that I really enjoy, Faith on Trial Studies in Psalm 73 by Martin Lloyd-Jones. So why is life different? What are we supposed to do when we see Psalm 1 not playing itself out? The the title of the message in your bulletin is Treasuring Christ When Life is Unfair. And really, this morning, we will see three perspectives that you need to have in order to treasure Christ when life is unfair. You have to have these three perspectives in order to be able to treasure Christ when life is unfair. Because that's the theme of this psalm struggling, fighting to trust God, to believe that God is really good, believe that He is trustworthy. When everything around you looks like the opposite, he's not trustworthy, he's not good, he's not keeping his promise. So let's look at these three perspectives that we have to have in order to be able to treasure Christ when life is unfair. Perspective number one, you must know that in the short term, things might not be fair. You must know that in the short term, things might not be fair. And I would put quotations around fair because fair is relative fair is uh if if god were fair with all of us right now we would all be dead and we'd all be sent to hell so god is gracious so we're not necessarily defining fair a certain way so uh, we're defining fair in terms of what we see in scripture wicked uh, really the bottom line is the good guy should win and the bad guy should lose right that's the bottom line and that doesn't happen the majority of the time but the bible seems to say that's going to happen So that's not fair in the short term. We must realize things might not be fair. Let's dive in verse one. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I know that's true. Asaph is saying, surely it's true. Truly, this is a reality. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. I know this is true, but I'm struggling with it. Why? Verse three, because I was envious of the arrogant or the boastful. As I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph is going to kind of line up some reasons why he's struggling. Struggle number one is the wicked are prospering. They're they're wealthy. What they do in their deceitfulness to acquire riches is working, and they're not getting caught, and they're not getting in trouble. They're prospering. Verse 4, and there are no pains in their death, their body is fat. Now, we wouldn't look at that and say that's necessarily good in our you know, 24-hour fitness economy. Um, what does it mean, though? It means that they are not wanting in food. They're not wanting in anything, right? They can eat whatever they want. They have all the food that they want. They have all that they need and that they want, and they're overflowing. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is that verse in the ESV. It says, Their bodies are fat and sleek and sleek. I don't know how that happens. Um, if you explain that to me, I'd love to know how you can be fat and sleek, but their bodies are fat and sleek. Verse 5 they are not in trouble. So they're wealthy. They're, we could say, healthy because they have all the food they want. They're not starving. And they're not in trouble, verse 5, as other men. They're not plagued like mankind. Therefore, because all of these things are happening, they're just so filled with pride. Pride is their necklace. They're walking around saying nothing can touch me, nothing can hurt me, nothing can harm me. I have more than everyone. The garment of violence covers them. So everything they do is done with a sense of violence and and everyone knows it. And it covers them as a jacket and you can readily see it. So they're not hiding these things. Verse 7, their eye bulges from fatness. Now we're just going crazy. They're eating so much that they're just bursting at the seams because they have plenty. They're not wanting. Verse 7, middle of verse 7, the imaginations of their heart run riot. They just overflow. They, they go in whatever direction they want. If they think of something, they do it, and they're not in trouble for it. No matter what it is, whether it be righteous, they're not doing anything righteous. More often, they're doing wicked, evil things. They think it. They do it, and they're not in trouble. God, judge them. What are you doing? Verse 8, they mock and they wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They look down on everyone else. They have set their mouth against the heavens. They're not even just looking down on us people. They're also looking down on God. They're uh, mocking him. Their tongues are parading throughout the whole earth saying, look, I can do whatever I want. You're telling me that God punishes wickedness? No, he doesn't look at me. Verse 10, is, 10 and 11 are a little bit challenging. They can go two ways. It can either be wicked people or righteous people. <clears throat> I think it's wicked people, and I'll read it that way, and then I'll show you the righteous one as well. Therefore, his people or the people of wickedness return to the place of wickedness. The waters of abundance are drunk by them. They just keep drinking abundant, abundant wickedness, and they say God doesn't know. How does God know? He's not seeing. He doesn't watch. And there's no knowledge with the most high. So that's that's the wicked. If it's wicked, that's the wicked. Like I said, this is a very challenging verse in the Hebrew, so it could be God's people. So let's read it for that. Therefore, God's people return to this place, return to a place of struggle, return to a place of I see inconsistencies and the waters of abundance are drunk by them. That would be um, almost like an overflow of wickedness. They can go to that or they can go to God. But they're saying, so these are righteous people, they're saying, does God know? How does God know? Does he see? And is there knowledge with him? Does he know? Does he see that wickedness is flourishing, that wicked people are prospering? It can go either way. Like I said, I think, um, I, I think it's wicked people. I think it's dealing with wicked people in verse 10, because it's always been about wicked people thus far. And then verse 12, kind of a summary statement. He says, behold, these are the wicked. Um, so I think it's wicked. People, but it could go either way. And it's still the exact same theme. It's the exact same problem. So Asaph continues, verse 12 Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. So they're making money while they are sitting in their lazy boys. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands of innocence. This is where he's struggling. You can hear it. Okay, if they're making millions in Illegal, evil, wicked ways, and you're not punishing them for that, for that, then what am I doing trying to be righteous? If they're cheating on their taxes and they're getting away with it, then why am I um, being righteous with my taxes? Uh, you can just fill in the blank. We've seen this. We know this feeling. And so he's struggling. I, I must have kept my heart pure in vain. Why? Because verse 14, everything that's should be happening to them, is happening to me. I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. His short-term perspective, Asaph's short-term perspective, is that, you know what, God should punish the wicked now. And I should be blessed now. The reality is, what's going on here? (laughs) The reality is, in the short term, things might not be fair. In the short term, the wicked might get away with it. And we need to know that. We need to realize that. We need to realize that on the opposite side for the righteous people. In the short term, the righteous people might not be immediately blessed, materially blessed in the same way that we think we should be blessed. I want to show you this in in a, a different way than really we've ever done anything before. Turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 16. I want to show you... A man who is blessed by God, righteously upholding God's word, and yet things aren't going well for him. The reason why I say this is going to be a little different is we're actually not going to look at verses. We will get there at the very end, but we're going to look at headings, okay, because we're going to fly through 1 Samuel. We're going to look at headings. If you have the New American Standard Bible, you'll have the same headings that I have more than likely. If you have the ESV, you'll have headings that are similar. So this isn't God's word, right? These are man-made titles, but they're trying to give the theme or what's happening in the account. And I want to just give you a summary statement of David's life. We're going to look at the kind of a biography of David's life and see if a man who is following after God, this is a man after God's own heart, and we're not even going to look into you know, the Bathsheba incident. So we're, we're before that. We would expect he'd just be blessed in whatever he does. Things would go well with him. You know the story, so this will be a summary for you as well. First Samuel chapter 16, the first heading that I have over verse 1 is Samuel goes to Bethlehem. And he's going there, uh, heading over verse 12, to anoint David as king. David's not king. And even when he's anointed, he's not king yet. But he is the promised king. Who's king at this point? Saul is king. And now God says to Samuel, you know what? Go anoint this little shepherd boy. And it seems like God's with him. This is great, right? Now a man loves God, is anointed by God to do amazing things for God. Things are going to go well. And they do right off the bat. Chapter 17, Goliath's challenge. David accepts the challenge. David kills Goliath. God is obviously with David. This is great. Chapter 18, above 18, verse 1, Jonathan and David... Now David is having uh, the the king's son become his best friend. So things are still being blessed, right, in a temporal sense. Things are going well for David. But it's short-lived. Above verse 10 in chapter 18, my Bible says, Saul turns against David. Saul turns against him. And if you go down to um, chapter 20, Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 19 above verse one, David has to be protected from Saul because Saul is chasing him. So here's David living uprightly before the Lord, the only man in all of Israel who says to Goliath, this is easy. God can totally destroy him. No, no worries. Piece of cake. I can take care of him. Man of faith, godly man, man after God's own heart. But things aren't going well. He's having to run from the king, the guy who is supposed to be upholding God's law, upholding God's word, obeying God. Let's keep going. <clears throat> Drop down to verse 21 or chapter 21. My Bible says David takes consecrated bread. That's in the tabernacle. And that's because he's homeless. He's on the run. He doesn't even have food. He's running. And he actually in this chapter runs to Gath, which were who, who came from Gath. Goliath. So now he's going to the enemy's territory because God's land, God's country, Israel, is pursuing him. Wait, you're supposed to be blessed. He wrote Psalm 1, right? How blessed is the man who doesn't do wickedness? And now I am being persecuted. This isn't going well. Chapter 22, the heading above that is priests are slain at Nob. That's Saul killing priests Um, so God's people, you can kind of lump the priests as well. Holy, righteous God's people being killed. Things are still not going well. He hides out in chapter 22 in the cave of Adullam. Um, anytime that cave is in your home address, things aren't going well for you. Um, chapter 23, David is still pursuing or being pursued by Saul. If you drop down to verse 15, Saul is pursuing David. Chapter 24, as Saul is pursuing David, right above verse 1, David spares Saul's life. So again, he has an option here. David has an option. Do I take violence? Do I take vengeance into my own hands and kill Saul? Because he could do that. Saul was asleep. Saul didn't even know he was there. But he says, no, I'm going to live righteously. I'm going to do what God tells me to do, even though it doesn't seem like God's on my side right now. I'm still going to obey. He obeys. Do you think that things are going to get better for him? It seems like if you obey, this is kind of the karma, and I think Christians really buy into this more than we think we do. Okay, I obeyed, then God should bless me. Okay, David obeyed. How does he get rewarded, quote-unquote? Chapter 25, Samuel dies. (laughs) The only guy that's for him in all of Israel at this point dies. Things aren't going well. Chapter 26 David spares Saul again. Chapter 27. So again, okay, the first time I spared Saul, Samuel died. Second time I spared Saul, maybe this time God will bless me for obeying and for being righteous. What happens after he obeys? Chapter 27, he has to flee to the Philistines. He is still on the run, and he has to go back to Gath, back to the enemy. And usually, the enemy of your enemy is who? Your friend. Your friend. But in this case, as David flees to the Philistines, the enemy of his enemy is his enemy. No one likes him. Nobody's for him. Drop down to chapter 30. Even in 28, Saul goes to the witch at Endor. The wicked are prospering. The righteous are not. Drop down in chapter 30, verse 6. 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. Moreover, David was greatly distressed out of all this. Why? Because the people spoke of stoning him. (laughs) He just cannot get a break. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But here's the key. David strengthened himself in who? The Lord is God. He didn't strengthen himself in his circumstances because they weren't going well didn't strengthen himself and his friends. He said, all I have is God. And that's exactly what Asaph is going to say in Psalm 73. The only one that I have in heaven is you. I only have God on my side, but if that's all I have, I'm okay. It's very interesting to think through this chronology. We just zipped through it. A conservative estimate of the time that it took between David being anointed as king in chapter 16 to him actually being king in Second Samuel uh, chapter 5 and 6 Is 15 years. That's a conservative estimate. More likely and more often, um, people think that it's 20 to 23 years. So if we say 20 years, let's just round it out. 20 years that David, after being anointed as king, has to wait before God fulfills that promise and blesses him. And things are quote unquote fair again. But he strengthens himself in the Lord. We have to realize, you know what? In this life, in the short term, things are not always going to be fair. We have to get, come to grips with that. David does that. Just write down Psalm 35. For the sake of time, we won't go there. But Psalm 35, David writes that psalm in the middle of being oppressed and um, being persecuted. And he trusts the Lord. It's kind of a, a fleshing out of him strengthening himself in the Lord that 1 Samuel 30 verse 6 talks about. The reality is all of God's people are going to get this. Um, you think about the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Well, you think about Jesus' words where he says, we're all going to have trials and tribulations. Take heart. I've overcome the world, but you're going to have those things. The world's going to hate you because they hated me, but take heart. And if you go to Matthew 5, you can just write it down, but the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, you are blessed if you're persecuted. You're blessed, can we say it this way? If you are treated unfairly, if life doesn't go the way that it should be going in your mind, you're blessed if you're treated unfairly. Why? Jesus gives many reasons why, but one of the reasons that I love in Matthew 5 is because the prophets were also mistreated as well. You're in good company. Jesus was mistreated, right? Uh, the, the most unfair circumstance in the entire universe is Jesus being mocked and spit upon and crushed on a cross. So it's, we're in good company when that happens. Turn back to Psalm 73. Asaph struggles. Maybe he had seen David. Maybe he understood what David had gone through. And now in this moment, he is seen. verse 13. Surely in vain, I have kept my heart pure. I'm struggling. I don't know if you've ever been there. You look around, and you say, God, I think I'm doing everything you're telling me to do. Where's the blessing that you promise? Things are still going so poorly And all the wicked who don't care about trying to keep your word are prospering, are flourishing. God, what are you doing? He's struggling. But verse 15, this is the beauty of the Psalms. We get to hear his heart without him speaking. So he hasn't spoken these things yet, and we're going to find that out in verse 15. And this is going to give us the second perspective. So first, we have to understand in the short term... We are going to have unfair things happen in life, and we have to get used to that. Second, in the long term, we need to understand that God's justice will prevail. In the long run, God's justice does prevail. In the long run, God is true to his word. In the long run, we are treated, quote-unquote, fairly. It will happen. Even from last week, from Psalm 90, we gain a heart of wisdom by looking at the wrath of God and looking at our death. We need to look to the end And that's where Asaph looks. He looks to the end. He says, in the here and now I'm struggling, but I know the end. And that will give me peace. Verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus. If I had said, I will speak thus. What's the thus? What's the predicate of the thus is verses 13 and 14. I'm following God in vain. It's pointless for me to follow God. If I had said that. So he. He didn't say it right. If I had said that, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I would have betrayed them because they believe, you know what? God is good. He is trustworthy. It's not fair right now, but I do trust him. They believe that. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Verse 16, I'm struggling to understand what's happening. I'm I'm struggling. Wait, the wicked are prospering. The righteous are, are being cursed, as it were. What's happening? I'm struggling. But, verse 17, if you are an underliner or a circler in your Bible, mark this, circle this, underline this. Verse 17, that first word, until I came into the sanctuary of God. I struggled to see the fairness of what was going on until I stepped foot in the house of God. And then everything changed. I saw who God was. Even as we sang this morning, who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of his words? Who can test and question the one who knows all things? Maybe even as Asaph went in and sang a song that's similar to that, he's thinking, you know what, I'm questioning God's goodness. I'm questioning his trustworthiness. It doesn't look like he's being fair, but I know he is fair. So until he walked into the sanctuary of God, he was struggling. But when he went into the sanctuary of God, then he perceived the end of the wicked. Verse 17, he he perceived the end. He saw the long-term perspective. What's the end? Verse 18, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. So, verse 2, Asaph's feet almost slipped. But verse 18, so we got righteous. a righteous man, his feet almost slip, but they won't. Verse 18, you've got the wicked man, his feet are on slippery places and they will slip. There's no way that they will not slip. Their end is destruction. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment. Eternal perspective, long-term perspective. Doesn't seem like a moment. We've got 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years of immorality, of unrighteous wickedness, of evil. God, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you staying so far away? Judge, save your people. But Asaph says, no, they they will be destroyed in a moment, in an instant. They're going to be destroyed. They will be utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. You will destroy them. And it'll be like a dream. It'll be like you wake up and boom, they're destroyed. You have to have a long-term perspective. Imagine if Asaph had said what he wanted to say in verses 13 through 14. I will speak thus. He said I would have betrayed the generation of your children and he wouldn't be able to say these things. But he holds his tongue and he doesn't speak it. There's a, there's a great moral of the story at this point. Don't say everything that you're thinking. Um, don't, don't just let words come out before you process them. Uh, I think Asaph would say that to you this morning. Oh, praise the Lord. I stopped. I waited. I didn't open my mouth because if I had, I would have done something. I really wish I could have taken back. And I want to show you somebody who did that. Turn to Job. Job chapter 9. Now, I don't want to harp on Job any more than we need to, but Job harps on himself, as it were, because at the end of Job, he says, I wish I hadn't said these things. I repent of my sin, of what I had said. What did he say? He said... What Asaph was feeling, he said what Asaph was struggling with. And I would say to you this morning, if you are feeling Psalm 73 verse 13, if you're feeling what Asaph's feeling, please listen to Job's words and realize you don't want to say what Job says. You want to fight hard with your tongue and with your soul to say what Asaph says in Psalm 73 and not what Job says in Job 9. Job 9 verse 21, drop down to verse 21. Job says this. You know Job's story. He's in the thick of it, and he says, I am guiltless. That's not sinless. He's saying, I'm above reproach. I do not take notice of myself, and I despise my life. Why? Because it's all one, therefore I say. God destroys the guiltless and the wicked. In our terms, it doesn't matter. I'm righteous, and God destroys me, and He says He destroys the wicked. Some of them prosper, some of them, it doesn't matter. If the scourge, verse 23, kills suddenly, he mocks the despair of the innocent. God mocks the despair of the innocent. You hear Job's words. I'm innocent and he's mocking me. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. And if it's not he, then who is it? He covers the faces of their judges. The judges don't even know who's righteous or who's wicked. Yes, let's punish the righteous. Let's let the wicked go free. Who cares? Who cares? Because their faces are covered. And Job says, if God's not the one covering their faces and bringing about these um, inequities, then who is it? Verse 25, now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They slip by like reed boats. They don't even see any good and they just flee away like an eagle that swoops in on its prey. Though I say, I will forget my complaint. I'm fighting. I want to say, forget the complaint. I will trust in God. He is good. I'm going to leave my sad countenance and be cheerful. He says, verse 28, I'm I'm trying to say that, but I'm afraid of all my pains and I know that you will not equip me. You're not for me anymore, God. I am accounted wicked. So why then should I toil in vain? That's exactly what uh, the psalmist was saying, what Asaph was saying. I'm toiling in vain here. He was thinking it, but he didn't say it. And he says, praise the Lord, I didn't say it. I think Job and Asaph in heaven Job probably went, you know what, man, if only I'd had the patience you had. And I think Asaph says, yeah, it's only because God gave me that patience. It's not me. But learn from Job. Learn from Asaph. If you felt this way, and I'm sure that you have at one point or another, learn from them that in the short term, things are not going to be fair. In the long run, God will judge. The wicked do come to an end that you and I don't want. Uh, Let's go to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 24. We're going to go look at a couple of Proverbs here. Proverbs 24, verse 16 through 20. What is the end? What is the long-term perspective that we need to have of the wicked and of the righteous? Proverbs 24, verse 16. A righteous man falls seven times, but he rises again. He almost slips, but he doesn't. Um, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. They do find slippery places and they are destroyed. Don't rejoice when your enemy falls. Don't let your heart be glad when he stumbles or the Lord will see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. Don't fret because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked for there will be no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Mark that verse, Proverbs twenty four There is no future for the evil man, and their lamp will be put out. Asaph remembers that. Maybe he even read some of these um, sayings or sayings like them. Maybe he's mulling over these realities, and he's thinking, you know what? I know that the end of the matter is settled. It's sure. In the short term, there are inconsistencies here. There are inequities. But in the long run, God judges. Turn back one chapter to Proverbs 23, verses 17 and 18. Do not let your heart envy sinners. This is Proverbs 23:17. Don't let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. So we know the end of the wicked, but we also know the end of the righteous. Your hope won't be put to shame. Hope in God. He will not disappoint you. Go to Proverbs 20, verse 17. Proverbs 20, verse 17, bread obtained by falsehood is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be filled with gravel. Bread that is obtained with wickedness, with evil. Oh, it's sweet. Look at what I have. But after, afterwards, it will turn to ruin. It will turn to ruin. So this is where we could have a very defeatist attitude. We understand, okay, in the short term, life's not going to be fair. In the long run, God will judge. God will deal with the wicked. So it could be easy to then say, so then life's going to stink. And it's just going to be unfair. And I might as well not put my hope in anything and just trust God in the very end. Just kind of be a defeatist. Um, Things aren't going to get any better. The bad guys are always going to win now. The good guys are always going to lose now. Might as well just prepare for trouble and forget about blessing. But that's not where the psalmist goes. Back to Psalm 73. So if you want to treasure Christ in the here and now, even in the midst of life's unfair trials and troubles, number one, you have to have a short-term perspective that says life's going to be unfair. Number two, you have to have a long-term perspective that says God's justice will prevail. The end of the matter for the wicked and the end of the matter for the righteous is sealed. But what do you do now? Number three, perspective number three in the short term and the long term, you need to truly believe that you are blessed if you walk with God. In the short term, here and now, even in the unfairness, and in the long term, you are blessed if you walk with God. We, we often say, well, I'm only blessed if I walk with God in the long run, but in the short term, with the unfairness of life, with the inequities, I'm not blessed. No, that's not true. And that's where Asaph goes. You are blessed, even if it doesn't look like it or feel like it, you are blessed. Verse 21. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. That's what Job was in Job nine. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand with your counsel. You will guide me and afterwards receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My heart, my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There are four realities in those short verses of blessings that we have in God that the wicked will never have. The wicked will never have these. Verse 23. If you are righteously walking with the Lord, you will have God continually with you. He will take hold of your right hand. He will hold you. He will walk with you. We could say it this way. He will care for you. I'm just going to give you four C's. He's going to care for you. You have the care of God if you are walking with him. You have God's care. Verse 24, you also have his counsel. With your counsel, you will guide me. So God cares for you. He holds you in his right hand. He takes care of you and he won't let you go. And if you walk with God, you have the present blessing of him counseling you. You won't be lost in the darkness wondering what to do. God tells you. Verse 24, God will receive you to glory. This is both present and future benefit. Um, This is hope. Let's say it this way. You have confidence um, you have God's care, you have God's counsel, and you have confidence in God that at the last day you will not be dismayed. You will not be disappointed. You will be brought into glory by God. You will be with Him in heaven forevermore. And then verses 25 through 26, the psalmist stops looking around at the earth, at the people in the earth. He stops looking laterally, if you will, and he looks vertically to God. And he says, I just want you, I just have you, and if all I have is you, I'm fine why? Because even if, if you drop down to verse 26, even if my heart and flesh fail, what's that called? That's called dying. Even in my death, God is the strength of my life. God is my, we could say it this way, comfort. Even in the midst of death, I can be happy. Even in the midst of prospective death and dying, I can rejoice because God is my comfort. Just think about those four things. We have God's care, God's counsel. We have confidence in God, and we have comfort by God even in the last moments of our life. Think about those four things with a nonbeliever. Does God care for a non-believer? Does God care for a wicked person? No. His hand of grace is removed from what they're doing. So they can temporally be blessed in this world by things that they do, but God's hand is not caring for them. He's not holding them in his right hand. Counsel, they're on their own. If they don't turn to God's word, wicked, evil, unrighteous people just say, you know, I'll do it myself. And they don't have any counsel. They surely don't have confidence of what's going to happen in the end. And they have no comfort in their death. Go to the deathbed of somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ and go to the deathbed of somebody who does know Jesus. They're very different. They're very different. So Asaph says, behold, verse 27, those who are far from you will perish You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to me, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I've made the Lord God, my refuge that I may tell of your work. So I was about to tell everybody that he is not worthy to be trusted. And now I'm going to tell, no, he is trustworthy. He is good. And really the Psalm ends where it began in verse one. So surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Don't be dismayed, have the right perspective God is good. God is good. Charles Wesley, on his deathbed in March of 1788, he wrote, and can it be in a number of other hymns, he was meditating on Psalm 73, and he wrote this. I want to have the perspective that Charles Wesley has in my old age, not only because he is so biblically saturated in what he says, but also because he's still poetic. As he's dying, he can still write a poem. Um, That's amazing to me. He says... And he couldn't even write, he just dictated this to his wife. And these are his last words that are recorded for us. In age and feebleness extreme, what shall a sinful worm redeem? Jesus, my only hope thou art, strength of my failing flesh and heart. Oh, could I catch a smile from thee and drop into eternity? He says, oh, all I have in heaven is God. That's all I need. If everyone in the entire universe is against me, but God is for me, I don't care. And if God is not for me and everyone in the entire universe is for me, it doesn't really matter because at the end of your life, if God's against you, then you will be destroyed. As we come to the Lord's Supper, I want to go back to Job. There's so many ways that we can enter into this time of worshiping God for what he has done. Obviously, the substitution of Jesus Christ in our place. I mean, that's the biggest thing that surely God is good to those in Israel, to those who walk uprightly, who are pure in heart. Surely that's true. Psalm 73, verse one. That is true through and through, except in the case of Jesus Christ. God punished Jesus, even though he was sinless, because he took our sin and he threw it on Jesus on the cross, punished him, for sins that he had never committed, he became sin for us. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, even though he knew no sin, surely that would have been unfair treatment on the cross. Imagine Jesus. I mean, he says, God, you're forsaking me. Why? What have I done that you would forsake me? And it's as if God were saying, I placed the sins of those who believe on your shoulders and I'm punishing you for them for what they've done. But Job struggled with this. And this is where I want to end our time in in God's word. Drop down in Job 9. This is right after he has said everything. Verse 29, I'm accounted wicked. Why should I toil in vain? If you drop down to verse 32, here's my biggest problem, Job is saying. I want to talk with God. And God is not a man as I am that I may answer to him or that we can go to court together. I want to argue my case with him there's no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Let him remove his rod from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but I am not like that in myself. I fear him. I want to talk to him and present my case before him, but I can't because he is God and I'm a man and I need somebody. I love the word he uses. There's no umpire between us. Job didn't even know what he was asking, but God did. And in 1st Timothy chapter 2 verses 5 through 6 God sent a man the mediator Jesus Christ the God man to mediate between God and man. There is only one God and there is only one mediator the man Christ Jesus. And he is the one who bore our sin away in his body. By his purity our impurities were cleansed. And communion is a celebration of our umpire, of our mediator. Oh, Job, if only you knew. You don't want to go before God and plead your case because you are guilty. You want Jesus pleading your case. And you trust in his finished work, in his righteousness on the cross. I'm going to ask the men if they would come and begin passing out these elements um, As you receive these elements, hold them. We're going to just sing a song and then we'll take communion together. But as they're taking these elements and passing them to you, this is what I want to plead with you. Um, If you know Jesus Christ as your perfect substitute, if you know him as your perfect righteousness, then these elements are just a memorial, if you will, They are a remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. They are remembering three realities. Number one, God is holy and you cannot be in his presence because of your sin. That's number two. You are a sinner through and through. And number three, Jesus came, lived the perfect life that you and I have to live to get to heaven, but could never live because we're sinners. He lived that perfect life. And then he died the death that you and I deserve because of our sin, even though he was sinless. That's why we take the bread and the cup. The bread represents the body, a perfect, sinless body with no sin through and through. But sin was placed upon him on the cross. And then his blood was poured out. He died the death that you and I deserve. So that if we place our trust in him, not in karma, not in our good works, not in trying to be good enough or earn his favor, Then and only then can we partake of this feast, this celebration, because this is a joyous occasion to say, I have nobody on earth besides you, God, to help me out. I have no one in heaven but you, but you are on my side. The gospel forever proves Jesus is on our side. So let's just sing together um, the first two verses of how deep the Father's love for us as we prepare to take this cup together.